history of GNOME. Episode 2.2 Release Day For intent and purposes, the 2.0 release process of GNOME was a reboot of the project. As such, it was a highly introspective event that just so happened to result in a public release of a software platform used by a large number of people. The real result of this process was not in the bits and bytes that were compiled or interpreted into desktop components, panel applets or applications. It was instead a set of design tenets, a project ethos, and a powerful marketing brand that exists to this day. The GNOME community of developers, documenters, translators and designers was faced with the result of Sun's user testing and with the feedback on documentation, accessibility and design, and had two choices. Double down on what everyone was doing and maintain the existing contributor and user bases, or adapt, take a gamble and change, possibly even lose contributors in the hope of getting more users and more contributors down the road. The community opted for the latter gamble. The decision was not without internal strife. This kind of decisions is fairly common in all projects that reach a certain critical mass, especially if they don't have a central figure keeping everything together and being the ultimate arbiter of taste and direction. Miguel de Casa was already really busy with Simeon, and even if the foundation created a release team in order to get a steering committee to make informed, executive decisions in case of conflicts, or decide who gets to release what and when, in order to minimize the disruption of the chain of dependencies, this team was hardly an entity capable of deciding the direction of the project. If effectively nobody is in charge, the direction of the project becomes an emergent condition. People have a more or less vague sense of direction and a more or less defined end goal, so they will move towards it. Maybe not all at the same time, and maybe not all on the same path, but the sum of all vectors is not zero, or, at the very least, is not zero all the time. Of course, there are people that put more effort in order to balance the equation, and those are the ones that we tend to recognize as the leaders, or, in modern tech vernacular, the rock stars. Seth Nickel and Callum Benson clearly fit that description. Both worked on usability and design, and both worked on user testing, with Callum specifically working on the professional workstation user given his position at Sun. Seth was the GNOME usability project lead, and alongside the rest of the usability team, co-authored the GNOME Human Interface Guideline, or HIG. The HIG was both a statement of intent of the design direction of GNOME, as well as a checklist for developers to go through and ensure that all the GUI applications would fit into desktop environment by looking and behaving consistently. At the very basic core of the HIG sat a few principles. Design your application to let people achieve their goals. Make your application accessible to everyone. Keep the design simple, pretty and consistent. And finally, keep the user in control, informed of what happens, and forgive them for any mistake. 
These four tenets try to move the needle of the design for GNOME applications from the core audience of standard nerds to the world at large. In order to design your application, you needed to understand the audience that you wish to target and how to ensure that you won't get in their way. This also means that you should never limit your audience to people that are as able-bodied as you are or coming from the same country or socio-economical background. Your work should be simple and reliable, in the sense that it doesn't do two similar things in two different ways, and that users should be treated with empathy and never with contempt. Even if you did not have access to the rest of the document, which detailed how to deal with white space or alignment or the right widget for the right action, you could already start working on making an application capable of fitting in with the rest of GNOME. Consistency and forgiveness in user interfaces also reflect the changes in how those interfaces should be configured, or if they should be configured at all. In 2002, Havoc Pennington wrote what is probably the most influential essay on how free and open source software user interfaces ought to be designed, called, quote, free software UI, end quote. The essay was a response to the evergreen question, can free and open source software methodology lead to the creation of a good user interface, posed by Matthew Paul Thomas, a designer and volunteer contributor at Mozilla. Free and open source software design and usability suffer from various elements, most notably that there are too many developers and not enough designers, and that designers can't really submit patches. In an attempt at fixing these two issues, the GNOME project worked on establishing a design and usability team with the help of companies to jumpstart the effort. The presence of respected designers in leadership positions also helped creating and fostering a culture where project maintainers would ask for design review and testing. We're still a bit far from asking for design input instead of design review, which usually comes with pushback now that the code is in place. But small steps, I guess. The important part of the essay, though, is the one on the cost of preferences, namely that there is no such thing as just adding an option. Adding an option on a technical level requires adding code to handle all the potential states of the option. It requires handling failure cases, a user interface for setting and retrieving the option. It requires testing and QA for all the states. Each option can interact with other options, which means a combinatorial explosion of potential states, each with its own failure mode. Options are optimal for a certain class of users because they provide the illusions of control. They are also optimal for a certain class of developers because they tickle the instinct of making general solutions to solve classes of problems instead of fixing the actual problem. In the context of software released as is, without even the implied warranty of being fit for purpose, like most free and open source software is, it removes stress because it allows the maintainer from abdicating responsibility. It's not my fault that you fabricated the Fubarizer and all your family photos have become encoded version of the GNU C library. You should have been holding a lit black candle in your left hand and a curved blade knife in your right hand if you didn't want that to happen. More than that though, what you definitely don't want is having preferences to fix your application. If you have a bug, don't add an option to work around it. If somebody is relying on a bug for their workflow, then too bad. 
adding a preference to work around the bug introduces another bug, because now you've encoded a failure state directly into the behavior of your code, and you cannot even change it. Finally, settings should never leave you in an error state. You should never have a user break their system just because they put invalid data in a text field, or toggle the wrong checkbox, or click the wrong button. Recovering is good, but never putting the user in the condition of putting bad values in the system is the best approach, because it is the more resilient one. From a process standpoint, the development cycle of GNOME 1 and the release process of GNOME 2.0 led to a complete overhaul of how the project should be shepherded into releasing new versions. Releasing GNOME 2.0 led to many compromises. Features were not complete, GNOME bugs ended up in release notes, and some of the underlying API provided by the development platform were not really tested enough before freezing them for all time. It is hard to decide when to shout pencils down when everyone is doing their own thing in their own corner of the world. It's even harder when you have a feedback loop between the development platform that provides API for the rest of the platform and needs validation for the changes while they can still be made and applications that need the development platform to sit still for five minutes so they can be ported to the new goodness. GNOME was the first major software project to switch away from a feature-based development cycle and towards a time-based one, thanks to the efforts of Jeff Vaux on behalf of the release team. The whole 2.0 development cycle was schedule-driven, with constant reminders of the various milestones and freeze dates. Before the final 2.0 release, a full plan for the development cycle was proposed to the community of maintainers. The short version of the plan was, quote, the key elements of the long-term plan, a stable branch that is extremely locked down, an unstable branch that is always compilable and dog food quality, and time-based releases at six months intervals, end quote. Given that the 2.0 release happened at the end of June, that would put the 2.2 release in December, which would have been problematic. Instead, it was decided to have a slightly longer development cycle to catch all the stragglers that couldn't make the cut for 2.0 and release 2.2 in February, followed by the 2.4 release in September. This period of adjustment led to the now familiar release cadence of March and September releases every year. Time-based releases and freezing the features, API, translatable strings, and eventually code around the 0.0 release date ensure that only features working to the satisfaction of the maintainers, designers, and translators would end up in the hand of the users. Or, at the very least, that was the general plan. It is important to note that all of these changes in the way GNOME as a community saw itself and the project they were contributing to are probably the biggest event in the history of the project itself, and possibly in the history of free and open source software. The decision to focus on usability, accessibility, and design shaped the way people contributing and using GNOME think about GNOME. It even changed the perception of GNOME for people not using it, for good or ill. GNOME's brand was solidified into one of care about design principle, and that perception continues to this day. If something user-visible changes in GNOME, it is assumed that the design, usability, or accessibility had something to do with it, even when it really didn't. It is assumed that designers sat together, 
did user studies, finalized the design, and then, in one of the less charitable versions, lobbed it over the wall to module maintainers for its implementation with no regard for objections, even when it really, really didn't. That version of reality is so far removed from ours, it might as well have superheroes flying around battling monsters from other dimensions. And yet, the GNOME brand is so established that people will take it as an article of faith. For all that, though, GNOME 2 did have usability studies conducted on it prior to release. The human interface guidelines were written in response to those studies and to established knowledge in the interaction design literature and community. The changes in the system settings and menu structures were done after witnessing users struggle with the equivalent bits of GNOME 1. The unnecessary settings that littered the desktop as a way to escape making decisions or as a way to provide some sort of intellectual challenge to the developers were removed because, in the end, settings are not the goal for a desktop environment They're just supposed to launch applications and provide an environment for those applications to exist. This was peak GNOME brand. On June 27, 2002, GNOME 2.0 was released. The GNOME community worked days and nights for more than a year after releasing 1.4 and for more than two years after releasing 1.2. New components were created, projects were ported, documentation was written, screenshots were taken, and text was translated. Finally, the larger community of Linux users and enthusiasts will be able to witness the result of all this amazing work, and their reaction was, Thanks, I hate it. Well, no, that's not really true. Yes, a lot of people hated it, and they made damn well sure you knew that they hated it. Mailing lists, bug trackers, articles and comments on news websites were full of people angrily demanding their five clocks back, their heavily nested menu structure, or their millisecond precision animation settings, or their miscellaneous group of settings in a miscellaneous tab of the control center. A lot of people simply sat in front of GNOME 2 and managed to get their work done before turning off the machine and going home. A few people, though, saw something new. The potential of the changes and of the focus of the project. They saw beyond the removed configuration options, the missing features left for a future cycle, or the bugs caused by the massive changes in the underlying development platform. Those few people were the next generation of contributors to GNOME. New developers, sure, but also new designers, new documentation writers, new translators, new artists, new maintainers. They were inspired by the newly refocused direction of the project, by its ethos, to the point of deciding to contribute to it. GNOME needed to be ready for them. Next week, the magic and shine of the release starts wearing off, and we're back to the flames and long discussions on features, media stacks, inclusion of applications in the release, and what happens when Novell decides to go on a shopping spree, in the episode titled, Honeymoon Phase. (music) 